book of Ephesians. We'll be starting a new study. I haven't a clue what that's going to be yet, but we'll be starting a new one uh, on Sunday night. And we're only a few messages away from starting a new one on Sunday morning as well. We have two more chapters to go in the Gospel of John. Ephesians chapter number 6. Far too many Christians view Christianity not as an entrance into battle, but as an exit from it. The expectation of many in our day, especially it seems in American Christianity, probably influenced by the prosperity gospel, is if you are sick, Jesus will make you well. If you are broke, Jesus will make you wealthy. If you are having a hard time, Jesus will make everything all right. It would seem, if you hear them talk, that Jesus' one and only objective is to make their lives smooth and pleasant. But sooner or later, every true believer is faced with the reality that the Christian life is a battleground, not a playground. What Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6 is a preparation for that spiritual battle. So in his closing of his letter to the church at Ephesus, he writes, Ephesians chapter 6, verse number 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Well, the first thing that I want you to see tonight is the source of this strength. He says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. So Paul begins by telling his readers that the strength for this spiritual battle comes from the Lord, not from themselves. We should also notice that Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Paul states that there is strength and there is a and there is power available for the Christian, which is beyond their own strength and power. The Christian spiritual warfare, he says, is against the devil's schemes. 
He is to arm himself with spiritual armor in the same way that the Roman soldier, one of whom, of which is probably chained to Paul as he writes this, he gives an indication of this armor. It was customary for them to be equipped for physical warfare, and he wants us to notice that this uh, armor that he's talking about is supplied by God. The second thing we see is the need for this strength. Paul is not denying that we do actually struggle on the human level, but rather that we don't just struggle on the human level. We are engaged in a supernatural, spiritual battle that requires new weapons. We cannot fight this battle in our own strength. First of all, he tells us that we need to do this in order that we will be able to stand against the devil's schemes. Paul tells us that the entity that's standing against us is the devil. Diabolos, he is, of course, Satan. He is the counterpart of the greatest of the unfallen angels, Michael and Gabriel. But he is not the spiritual counterpart of God. He is not all-powerful, omnipotent. He cannot be in all places at the same time, omnipresent, nor is he all-knowing, omniscient. He is nevertheless a very formidable foe. The term that he uses, wiles or schemes, is the Greek word that we get our word method from. The Christian is to arm himself against the methods of the devil. A diabolical diabolical battle requires divine weapons, and a satanic attack demands spiritual defenses. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5, Paul writes, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity for the obedience of Christ. Well, what are some of the methods that Satan uses? Well, one is that he blinds people through false doctrine, getting them to accept those things that are taught that are not in the Bible, false doctrine. He also entices people into sin, entices them into indulging into, in illicit desires of the flesh and mind. He also brings persecution upon those who do right. He also <clears throat> brings disappointment and discouragement into our lives and trying to turn us away from the Lord. Only with the Lord's help can we overcome Satan and his ways. And he is sly and crafty about when he chooses to attack. Sometimes he attacks when a person is just saved and don't, doesn't have a lot of knowledge about how to overcome Satan. Sometimes he attacks when a Christian is discouraged. He attacks when a Christian has experienced some notable success 
Sometimes pride can get in our way. He attacks when a Christian is idle. He attacks when a Christian is isolated. He also tells us that we need to struggle against spiritual forces of evil. Our struggle is not merely against flesh and blood, as we've already talked about in 2 Corinthians there, against principalities and powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. The word which is translated rulers of darkness has been anglicized into the word cosmocrats. Many scholars such as F.F. Bruce believe that these terms refer to a hierarchy among fallen angels. The spiritual host of wickedness fall into different categories and would include the entire demonic realm. The list given by Paul suggests a definite army of demonic creatures who assist Satan in his attacks against believers. The angelic beings which serve Satan are apparently those angels who joined in a rebellion against God in heaven. We read about it in 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 4 and Jude, chapter, and Jude verse number 6. Isaiah 14 tells us that they were cast out of heaven because of that. And the apostle John hints in the book of Revelation that it, up to one-third of the angelic host fell with Satan when he rebelled against God. So if the enemy were flesh and blood, we would prepare our bodies for the conflict. If the enemies were of this world, we would use the weapons of this world. But since this struggle is spiritual, we must prepare our spirits. A spiritual battle is going on in this world, and you or I are part of it, whether we know it or not, whether we acknowledge it or not. Spiritual warfare is not imaginary warfare, but it is a real battle between the forces of good and evil, which sometimes flashes into view in the form of terrorism and other acts of violence in our world. The third thing that we see is the nature of this strength. He says in verse 14, Stand therefore having gird your waist with truth, having put on the, the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. We don't know exactly what suggested the imagery of armor to Paul, although as I pointed out, it may have been from his daily contact with the Roman guards, but it could also be from his reading of Scripture, his reflection on the Word of God, because in the book of Isaiah, you find that kind of imagery as well in Isaiah chapter 11, in chapter 52, and in chapter 59. But whatever the reason, twice Paul commends that Christians put on the whole armor of God. Each part of the armor is directed against one way in which Satan attacks the believer. 
The breastplate arms us against Satan as the accuser. The shield of faith arms us against Satan as the tempter. And the helmet protects us against Satan as the deceiver. Every element that Paul now describes is essential to being strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. First of all, what makes up this armor? The first three pieces of armor are distinctive in that they are introduced by the word have or having, indicating these are not a permanent piece that the believer is never without. First of all, there is the belt of truth, having gird your waist with truth. The soldier's belt, also called a girdle in some translations, Most modern men kind of shy away from that image of the girdle. But nevertheless, what is called here is a vital piece that held all the other pieces of armor together. It uh, also held the sword. For the Christian soldier, the first vital piece of spiritual armor is the belt of truth. Truth holds the spiritual armor in place and safeguards against deadly entanglements. And then there's the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate was the next piece of armor that the Roman soldier put on. It was both strong and light. It was said that an armor, that an arrow shot from 20 paces left only a slight scratch on it. If what is being referred to here is the righteousness of Christ, then it is received when we come to Christ in faith and God extends to us the righteousness of his Son. Paul wrote in his letter to the church at Corinth saying, For he had made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The next is feet shod with the gospel of peace. The Roman soldier wore a low half boot, it had a very strong sole, had open leather work on the top. It was studded with sharp nails to ensure a firm grip. This footwear was also designed for mobility. The Roman army was renowned for their ability to march great distances in a short time. Scripture also reveals two aspects about this peace that we are to have. First of all, peace with God, with God. Romans 5.1, Paul says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. When we accept Jesus as our personal Savior, we accept the good news of Christ's death in our place, we experience harmony and peace with God. We are no longer at enmity with God, but now we have attained peace with God. There is also the peace of God, which is different. In John chapter 14, verse 27, Jesus promised, he said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. So those whose feet are prepared with the peace of God and the resulting peace of God 
are powerful soldiers who are ready for spiritual battle. The gospel of peace is the footwear for the Christian soldier with an emphasis on being prepared. The irony is that the gospel of peace prepares us for war. The next three pieces of armor are distinctive in that they are introduced by the word take or taking, indicating that they are to be kept in readiness for actual combat. There is the shield of faith. The Roman shield was large, usually about four feet by two feet, very much like a door. In fact, it was actually doubled as a stretcher. A wounded soldier could be carried on it and carried away from the battlefield. It was made on a wooden frame with as many as seven layers of oxide, which could easily deflect and extinguish the flaming arrows shot by the enemy. The Christian soldier is defended by the shield of faith. Whatever Satan throws at us can be successfully deflected by, the, by our complete trust in God. The edges of the shield were so constructed that an entire line of soldiers could interlock their shields and form what was called a phalox and face the enemy like a solid wall. The important fact was that the Roman soldier did not fight alone. Dr. Boyce puts it this way. He says, our faith should do three things. It should cover us so that we, that no portion is exposed. It should link us up with the faith of others to present a solid wall of defense. And because it covers our entire person and links us with the faith of our fellow soldiers, it should be able to strike down whatever fiery darts the enemy may hurl at us. And then there is the helmet of salvation. The helmet of a legionnaire was made of bronze, often with two hinged cheek flaps that fastened by a chin band. On marches, the helmet was not worn but it was slung on his side on a strap. Therefore, the putting on of the helmet marked the beginning of a battle. The Christian soldier is protected by the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation is the assurance of eternal life and the resulting confidence from this knowledge that it provides. One of Satan's favorite and most distressing tactics is to attempt to rob you of your confidence in your eternal security. Then there is the sword of the Spirit. So far, all of the armor for spiritual warfare has been defensive. But now we have the one and only offensive weapon that we are given to use against Satan. Now, there were two different kinds of swords that the Roman legionnaire had available to him. One was a long, broad sword, and then there was a second, shorter, two-edged sword 
that was short enough to be effective in hand-to-hand combat. That's the kind of sword that's being described here. And it's the kind of sword that was described in Hebrews chapter 4, 12 and says that the word of God is sharp and able to cut. Uh, It is the only offensive weapon listed by Paul. The phrase of the Spirit means that the Holy Spirit is the source of God's word. And he is also the only one who can give us effectiveness and using it as a cutting edge. A physical sword pierces the body, but the word of God pierces the heart. The more you use a physical sword, the duller it becomes. But the repeated use of the word of God only makes it sharper in our lives. So, How do you go about using the sword of God, the sword of spirit? By reading it, by meditating on it, by memorizing it, by studying it. Those are ways in which we can prepare ourselves. Well, that was what the armor is composed of, but how is the armor to be put on? The soldier must maintain contact with his commanding officer. Prayer helps keep us in tune with the Lord and with his purposes. How important is prayer? Well, Paul tells us that it's very important by the repeated use of the word all in verse 18. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. He says, first of all, at all times, praying always. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul commands the believer to pray without ceasing. He also tells us that we are to be praying in the Spirit. In Romans 8 26 and 27, Paul says, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weakness, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. All prayer ought to be spirit-directed. When we cannot understand how we should pray, it is the Holy Spirit who enables us to pray effectively. He directs our prayers. He also says, with all perseverance, being watchful and to this end with all perseverance and supplication. Jesus himself emphasized the importance of prayer. In fact, he told a story in Luke chapter 18 called the parable of the unjust judge. He used that parable to illustrate the point of the importance of prayer. The stated purpose of that story was to show that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. We should never quit praying until we get an answer. Yes, no, or not now. Stories told of George, George Mueller of Bristol. You may remember him as having uh, an orphanage in England. 
It is said that he never asked anybody for financial help. He thought that the method to attain the help he needed was to pray. And he prayed and God provided. But he had two friends. Two friends that he was praying for their salvation. And he prayed for over 50 years for their salvation. He was asked whether he really believed that God would bring those men to salvation. And his answer was, well, do you think God would have me keep praying for all these years if he did not intend to save them? They were both saved, by the way. One shortly before Mueller's death and one after Mueller's death. In his sovereign will, God uses persistent prayer. He also said praying for all the saints. This is describing intercessory prayer, which is a prayer for others. Dr. John Piper has a way of saying things, and he makes this a very convicting statement about prayer. In his book entitled Desiring God, he wrote, Unless I'm badly mistaken... One of the main reasons so many of God's children don't have a significant life of prayer is too much that we don't want to. Because if we wanted to, we would plan to. If you want to take a four-week vacation, you don't just get up one summer morning and say, hey, let's go today. You wouldn't have anything ready. You wouldn't know where to go. Nothing had been planned. But that is how many of us, he says, treat prayer. We get up day after day and realize the significant times of prayer should be a part of our lives, but nothing is ready. We don't know where to go. Nothing has been planned. No time, no place, no procedure. And we all know that the opposite of planning is not a wonderful flow of deep, spontaneous experiences of prayer. The opposite of planning is a rut. If you don't plan a vacation, you'll probably stay at home and watch TV. The natural unplanned flow of spiritual life sinks to the lowest ebb of vitality. There is a race to be run and a fight to be fought. If you want renewal in your life of prayer, you must plan to see it. In verse 20, we have Paul's final greetings. If you haven't discovered it already, life can be discouraging. We live in a society that can chew people up and spit them out. It is important to note that what we have in Paul's closing words to the church at Ephesus is a reminder that we do not have to be in the battle alone. First of all, there is a request for prayer. Paul says in verse 19, And for me, that utterance might be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. After bringing up the idea of spiritual warfare, 
that can be waged on the behalf of others, Paul now asks for them to pray for him. Paul could have asked for prayer for many things, including being released from prison. But he wanted his readers to pray for what? For his ability to speak boldly. He probably had in mind his upcoming defense before Caesar. But his heart and mind were fixed on his responsibility as an ambassador of the gospel. Paul asked for prayer that he might proclaim the gospel both clearly and with fearless power. Charles Spindall points out, we usually assume that Paul was fearless, impervious to, to discouragement, and unstoppable in his pursuit of his calling to preach wherever, whenever, and to whomever. But Paul was a frail, fallen human being just like the rest of us. And remember, he was under house arrest, an ambassador in chains. Verse number 21 talks about the sending of Picus. He says, but you might know my affairs and how I am doing. Tychus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make all things known to you, whom I have sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know our affairs and that he might comfort your hearts. It is always good to remember, and I think we sometimes forget, that Paul was engaged in a team ministry. Tychus was an associate of Paul's, mentioned in several places in Acts chapter 20, in Colossians chapter 4, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, in Titus chapter 3. Tychus seems to have been used by the Apostle Paul as a messenger. Paul wanted Tychus to comfort the Ephesians and everyone else who read the letter about his condition during his imprisonment in Rome. And then he closes in verses 23 and 24 with a final blessing. Peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with you all who love our Lord Jesus in sincerity. Amen. So Paul closes his letter as he began it with reference to grace and peace. Those are the essential cornerstones for the Christian life. Everyone enjoys peace. But the fact is, in our world, it can be very difficult to find. In fact, you can look the world over in search of peace and not find it. I heard of a retired couple who were alarmed by the threat of war. I believe that they were Hambies, and you'll understand later when I tell you the end of the story. Some years ago, they began a serious study of all the inhabited parts of the globe. They were trying to find a place which was the least likely to be affected by war. They both traveled and studied, and at last they found the place. 
And so at Christmas, they sent cards to their friends in the United States from their new home in the Falkland Islands just before war broke out between Britain and Argentina. Yeah, I told you they were probably Hamby's. You never know where you can find peace in this world until you come to Jesus. He alone can provide real peace. In A.D. 110, Ignatius of Antioch wrote a letter to this same church at Ephesus. And this is what he said to the church. He said, make every effort to come together more frequently to give thanks and glory to God. For when you meet together frequently, the powers of Satan are overthrown and his destructiveness is nullified by your faith. I'll quote Swindoll to you one more time because he says it so well. He said, one thing is clear in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We cannot go it alone. We weren't meant to. Just as the Holy Spirit dwells within each of us individually, He also dwells within the gathered body of the church. So, do you want to be prepared for spiritual attack and stand firm in the preparation of God? Then stay close to God's people. Draw strength from their presence and from their encouragement. Wise words. Let's pray. Father, we know that our enemy is still at work. He still tries his many schemes against us. He tries to deceive us with error. He tries to entice us into sin. He tries to use discouragement to pull us away from you, and from the body of Christ. Father, I pray that you'd help us to see our need to be spiritually prepared, individually. And then I pray that you'd help us to recognize that there is also strength in the body gathered. There is a purpose and there is a reason for us coming together on Sunday evenings to hear instruction from your word that we might be stronger and that we might draw strength from one another and encouragement from one another. We thank you for your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me, please?